Please turn in God's word to Acts chapter 2. We're studying the book of Acts together in the mornings. We take the, the narrative sections, the story as Luke tells it, and then in the evenings we tend to zoom in on a particular verse or a theme. This evening we come to zoom in on the theme or the topic of speaking in tongues. This is an issue over which Christians disagree, and that needs stressed at the start of this evening. It's an issue over which Christians disagree. It's not an issue of spiritual life and death. It's not an issue that we can divide churches into true and false over. It's not an issue by which we can judge true faith and unbelief by. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who speak in tongues. It's not to say it's unimportant. I'll explain in a moment that it is important, but it is to say that it is not of first importance. Some issues are spiritual life and death. There are some issues that if you are wrong on, you will go to hell. Just like in sports where you have a tiered system of leagues with different divisions, theological issues, issues in the Bible fall into leagues or tiers or divisions. There are some issues which are right at that top division, top tier, which divide between true and false Christianity. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation by grace through faith. That is spiritual life or death. That is right at the top of first importance. If you're wrong in that, you're not a Christian. But then there are issues that come in in a tear underneath that. Issues that are right at the core of our faith. But if you're, if you're wrong on, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. The doctrines of grace. God's sovereignty in, uh, in salvation. Election. Predestination. And then there's another tier of issues that divide between good churches and other churches. Issues like the sacraments. Church leadership. Gifts of the Spirit. And you can maybe even have, a, have another tier with other issues. The point I want to make is not to pinpoint where exact issues are in, in this tier. Those are just rough examples. It's not to say that differences aren't important. But as we begin tonight, I want us to understand that some differences are more important than other differences. You can speak in tongues you can baptize by immersion. You can govern by bishops and still be a Christian, even though we feel that those things are wrong. But you cannot do away with the fact that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That is of first importance. And so that's the context of all that we talk about tonight. Yet we do need the look at the differences between Christians. And we don't need to be scared of disagreeing. We need to be sure we know why we believe what we believe. We need to be sure we know why we do what we do. And as we look at Acts 2 this week, this provides an opportunity for us to do so. It's a natural opportunity for us to look at one of these issues that divides 
Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Because here are charismatic brothers and sisters based much of their teaching and their practice about speaking in tongues. It comes from this passage. And so it's relevant for us, important for us to look at. And it's not an insignificant issue. It's not of first importance, but it's not insignificant either. Pentecostalism is the fastest growing faith family in the whole world. It grew from zero in 1900 to half a billion by the turn of the century. Half a billion in a hundred years. It's estimated that 25% of all professing Christians are Pentecostals or Charismatics. It's important as well because the leaders of the Charismatic movement have a huge influence. A massive influence that we might not be aware of because we're, we live in a little bit of a bubble. It's not the most scientific method, but it's a method if you look at the Twitter followers of some of the charismatic leaders, Joyce Meyer has 2.5 million Twitter followers. Joel Austin, 2.2 million Twitter followers. T.D. Jakes, a prosperity gospel preacher, 1.3 million Twitter followers. That's their sphere of influence. This is a significant issue. Millions of people are being influenced by it. And it's a significant issue as well because of the recent growth in what are called reformed charismatics. Good men who preach God's sovereignty and salvation. But I also hold that spiritual gifts like tongues continue. Men like John Piper, men like Don Carson, men like David Platt and Matt Chandler. So-called charismatics with a seatbelt. These are influential figures in the Reformed faith. We buy their books, we read their books, we benefit from their books and their teachings. It's not an insignificant issue. So all this adds up to when we read about Pentecost, I believe it is appropriate for us to think about speaking in tongues. I've got three simple questions for us to look at this evening. The first one is this. What is speaking in tongues? What is speaking in tongues? I'm going to look, first of all, at what it is in the Bible, and then what it is in the modern day. What it is in the Bible. First of all, in the Bible, in the first place we come across it, is in Acts chapter 2, the passage that we read. Verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, or other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. It's clarified what exactly these other tongues, these other languages are. Remember that Luke describes Jerusalem full of people from all over the world. Verse 5, from every nation under heaven. Verse 6, and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 8, they say, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language. Verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues. Our own language. The mighty works of God. And so as we look at this. The, the, the first and the main instance of tongue speaking in scripture. We see very clearly. As we look at the passage. 
that it's a supernatural ability to speak foreign languages, unlearned foreign languages, declaring the mighty works of God. Again and again, four times in the passage it's emphasized, they're hearing their own languages. And the apostles are declaring the mighty works of God. That's Acts chapter 2, the first and the main reference. Supernatural ability to speak unlearned foreign languages, declaring the mighty works of God. The next incident is Acts 10. Peter speaking to the Gentile man Cornelius. In Acts 10, verse 44 and 46, Peter's been preaching to them, and Luke tells us, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and languages. It's the same word as Acts chapter 2, and extolling God. Hear them speaking in tongues and languages. And the next verse is important for understanding what happened. Verse 47, then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Just as we have. Peter sees all this happening at Cornelius' house and he thinks back to Pentecost, Acts 2, and he says, it's the same. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. What happened to the Gentiles happened to us. And when Peter reports back to Jerusalem in chapter 11, verse 15, he's describing what happened. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed, who was I to stand in God's way? Peter's stressing what happened to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. It's the same as what happened to us. Supernatural ability to speak in unlearned foreign languages, declaring the mighty works of God. Cornelius' house, the same as Pentecost. The next incident is in Acts 19, 1-7. Paul is in Ephesus. He meets some disciples of John the Baptist. Paul speaks to them and they come to believe in Jesus and they're baptised. And we're told in verse 6, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And Luke uses exactly the same word as he used in chapter 2 and as he used in chapter 10, other languages, other tongues. And so it makes sense to assume that he means the same thing, doesn't it? Supernatural ability to speak unlearned foreign languages, declaring the mighty works of God. Another place that's mentioned in the Bible is 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. That's obviously a big section. We haven't time to go into detail about it. And there is a little more uncertainty and different views over whether the tongues that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians, whether they're known languages, like in Acts, or whether they're unknown languages. I haven't time to go into all the arguments. And there maybe is a possibility that the tongues in 
Corinth that Paul's writing about where unintelligible sounds and languages, that is a possibility. I just want to point one thing out though. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost was known languages. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius' house was known languages. Acts 19, Ephesus was known languages. Paul's visit to Corinth is described in Acts 18. Now, we can't be sure from reading his letter to Corinth whether it's known languages or unknown, whether it's foreign languages or unintelligible babblings. But what would you put your money on if you had to when you see the story of Acts? But even if we grant that you can't be sure, and you can't be sure from reading, I don't think, from reading 1 Corinthians. The other three New Testament references that we have are known languages. I think you can make a case in 1 Corinthians, that a strong case that they're known languages. But we'll not go into that now. But the other three New Testament references are clear. Foreign languages that the speakers hadn't learned before. They're not unintelligible babblings. So we look at the New Testament evidence that points to tongues being known languages. Languages of the peoples of the earth that the people hadn't learned and yet had the power to speak to declare the wonders of God. That's tongues in the Bible. Unlearned foreign languages. What about tongue speaking today? Well, the tongue speaking of the charismatic Pentecostal movement is unintelligible babblings. And that's not a criticism. It maybe sounds like criticism, but it's not a criticism. It's a fact. That's a fact. It's also known as heavenly speech, the tongues of angels, a private prayer language. This is a point that even charismatics acknowledge. This is not a criticism. This is a fact that they themselves acknowledge. J. Lee Grady, editor of Charisma magazine, which calls itself the voice of the charismatic movement, here's what he says. The first time I spoke in tongues, I was in my room praying. I could tell that a heavenly language was bubbling up inside me. I opened up my mouth and the words spilled out. Elias, Skiradan, Tola, Descantama, or something like that. I had no clue what I was saying. Yet when I prayed in tongues, I felt close to God. Unintelligible babblings, that's their own description. Joyce Mayer, who I mentioned earlier, leading charismatic teacher. That's what she says. She's defending criticism, but just look how she describes what people are doing. I doubt that there are many people making up languages and spending their time talking in gibberish just for the sake of thinking they're speaking in tongues. Here she is, she's acknowledging that it's made up languages and talking in gibberish, unintelligible babblings, those sort of sounds that we, we, the guy gave the example of, Ilyas, Garudan, Tula, Du, Skantama. Unintelligible babbling, strings of ununderstandable syllables. It's called a private prayer language, uttering heavenly words. In fact, the first Pentecostal missionaries, when they went out at the start of the 1900s, 
they went out expecting, they went out to the ends of the earth expecting to speak the languages of the natives, expecting that what they were experiencing was foreign languages, equipping them for mission. And when they got there, they found that they couldn't speak those languages. And they had to change their theology. They had to choose, make a decision. Were they going to insist that tongues that they were speaking were real languages? Or were they going to change the definition to fit their experience? So what is tongue speaking? We see in the Bible it's speaking foreign languages, languages that are known to other people, spoken somewhere in the world. By its own definition, today in the charismatic movement, speaking in tongues is ecstatic, unintelligible babbling. That's what speaking in tongues is. But if it's a phenomenon in Scripture, well, why do we not believe in speaking in tongues? It is in Scripture. Speaking foreign languages that are unlearned but known to others. It's in Scripture. So why do we not believe in it? Well, of course, it's a big topic. There are books written on this. We haven't time to cover it exhaustively tonight. can't say everything that can be said, but we can touch on some of the fundamental things. And the first is, as we've already said, what we see today is not what we see in the Bible. Hopefully you've pieced that together from everything we've said so far. In Acts, it's known languages. Today, it's unintelligible babbling. It's not the same. Second reason is that the gifts of the Spirit are given for the common good. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, where he's speaking about the gifts of the Spirit and the gift of tongues, says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good, for the service of Christ's church. See, spiritual gifts, they're not for our own benefit. They're not for our own enjoyment. They're for the good of other people. They're for the good of the church. For building up and edifying and strengthening and helping. Hardly makes sense, does it then, to think of the gift of tongues as a private prayer language. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Spiritual gifts are for the common good. Third factor, third reason is that the occurrences in the New Testament, they taper off as time goes by. They're only in two books of the New Testament, Acts and Corinthians, both of which are relatively early. They're not mentioned in Paul's pastoral epistles. The last things that Paul wrote to the church, the crucial information that he wanted to impart to his young pastor friend Timothy. So he gave instructions for how to, how to uh, determine who should be elders in the church. He doesn't list tongues. The incidents taper off in the New Testament. There's no mention of them in John's writings. John is full of the Holy Spirit. Our call to worship this evening from John 16. John is full of the Holy Spirit in his gospel, in his letters. No mention of them. No mention of speaking in tongues. The seven letters to the churches in Revelation. Christ's last words to the churches going forward. There's no mention of speaking in tongues. The occurrences taper off. 
through the New Testament. Fourth reason is that not only did they taper off in the New Testament, they disappeared in church history. They disappeared in church history. There are some claims of tongue speaking in the early church, but any claims there are are sporadic. They're localized and they're debatable as to whether they're referencing speaking in tongues. And so as we look back on all history of the church, men like Augustine and Tertullian and Athanasius and Luther and Calvin, we look back at these men and say, oh, they were spiritual pygmies. They didn't speak in tongues. They were substandard Christians. Disappeared in church history. Fifthly, the phenomenon's not unique to charismatics. I don't know if you've ever seen someone speaking in tongues. It'd be quite unnerving. It's not something that we're used to. And you're confronted with the question, where is this coming from? Must this be a work of the Spirit? And as we're confronted with that sort of situation, we need to understand that it's important for us to realise that it's not unique to charismatics. It's present through many different ages and many different religions. The Greco-Roman mystery religions, which Jesus spoke about briefly, which Paul deals with a little, their secret rites and strange rituals involved unintelligible babblings, ecstatic gibberish. They used it to break free from the constraints of the mind. So the mystery religions of Greece and Rome had it. Shamans and witch doctors in animistic and primitive religions exhibit tongue-speaking, ecstatic babblings. Buddhist and Shinto monks, some sects of Muslims and Mormons all show ecstatic babblings, tongue-speaking as we know it. It's also associated with some mental illnesses. Schizophrenia, neurosis, psychosis. The point I want to stress here is that it's not a phenomenon that is unique to charismatics. Many different ages, many different religions, many different situations have exhibited ecstatic babblings, unintelligible gibberish. It's something that can be taught and learned and practiced as a religious act. And sixthly, tongues were a sign of judgment. Pentecost and the speaking in tongues wasn't a surprise to the disciples and shouldn't have been a surprise to the Jews. It wasn't unexpected, but it was foretold and it was explained. We thought a little about this this morning. You remember the verses we read in Isaiah chapter 28. Israel has been disobedient. They're disregarding God's message through the prophets. And so God says to them in Isaiah 28, He will speak to them through the lips of invaders. He'll speak to them in languages they don't understand. Isaiah 28, 11. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. The sound of foreign languages in Jerusalem was a sign of judgment. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 14, 
21. He quotes Isaiah. In the law it is written, By a people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. A sign for unbelievers. A sign of judgment. A warning that judgment is coming. A sign of judgment. On the day of Pentecost, the Jews heard strange languages in Jerusalem. And it was a sign to those who crucified God's prophet, the Messiah. It's a warning of judgment coming their way and it was a call to repent. Jesus' words being fulfilled, the kingdom will be taken away from them and given to others. And it should have been a warning to them of judgment. The sign of judgment. I've covered a vast area briefly with these six reasons. Obviously it's not as comprehensive as it could be. But I hope it gives you some idea of why we don't speak in tongues. And Don't worry if you don't remember those six things or all the details of them. Now you know that we have good reason for our practice. There's plenty of books I can recommend for you to go over and study more. But hopefully this, this brief survey gives you the beginnings of a handle on the issue and confidence in our position on the issue. Why we don't speak in tongues. But lastly, I want to think about what are those who speak in tongues looking for? If there are no grounds for the practice of modern day tongue speaking, ecstatic utterances and unintelligible babblings, why is it so popular? Why is it so sought after and pervasive in the church, the worldwide church? Why is it held up as the foremost mark of being baptized by the Spirit, the foremost mark of being a spiritual person? Well, I don't believe it's because of a deliberate effort to deceive. There undoubtedly are deceivers. Vast stretches of the charismatic movement are corrupt full of health and wealth prosperity gospel, full of immoral and corrupt leaders. You look at the who's who of the leading charismatics, those who have such a vast influence, those who have millions of Twitter followers, and it's not a pleasant list. There is deceit and wickedness in it, but it would be wrong for us to tar everybody with that brush. There are many good, honest upright, sincere Christians who speak in tongues. Why do they do that? What are they seeking? What are they pursuing? Here's what I think is the reason. There's a desire for supernatural experience. There's a legitimate desire to know more of God's power personally in their own lives. They read of God doing mighty things in Scripture and We want that for ourselves. We want it for ourselves. A clear work of God. There's a desire to experience closeness to God. Intimacy and fellowship and nearness. Desire to be transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
And if that is the case, friends, well then, that's not a wrong thing. It's not a wrong desire. And that's not something that they should draw back from if that's the motivation. The essence of our faith is relationship with God. Think of Paul's words to the Philippians. I want to know Christ. Think of Jesus' words. This is eternal life, that they may know you, speaking to God. That they may know you. The Psalms, I thirst, I long for you. Like a man uh, in a desert, I thirst and long for you. We should want more. We should want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. That is a good thing. The desire is not wrong. But they're looking for it in the wrong place. The intention's good. But as we've seen, they're going about it the wrong way. It's like when Micah tries to help Abigail put up the washing to dry, put up the item of clothing, and then he'll end up taking it down. And he'll end up taking down more than he puts up. And last time he did it, he pushed the clothes horse over and the clean clothes were on the dirty floor. He's got good intentions. He wants to help his mummy. But he goes about it in a wrong way, in a way that's not helpful. Our charismatic brothers and sisters, they have a good intention, many of them. But as we've seen, they're going about it the wrong way. The work of the Holy Spirit is not primarily stupendous and astonishing and outwardly miraculous works of wonder. That's not the way he works in our day and age. Jesus tells us he's like the wind. It blows, but you can't see it. You see its effects. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. His work is unseen. It's seemingly unremarkable. It's outwardly very normal and mundane, and yet it is supernatural and stupendous and astonishing and miraculous. Think of the very fact that, we, that you are a Christian. That is a stupendous miracle from the Holy Spirit You were dead, unresponsive to God, and you're now alive. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. You're unloving to God, and now you love him. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. He can make people who are dead become alive. It's a miraculous change that he works. The fact as well that you're now more like Jesus than you were when you first became a Christian. That is the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. We are corrupt to the core, rotten to the core, and yet we're becoming more like Jesus. That is a stupendous miracle. It's the work of the Spirit. Yet these are things that we're familiar with and we're comfortable with and we're used to. And we've lost the glory of the work of the Spirit and what he's doing in us. Our relationship with Jesus, it's not seen in unintelligible babblings and ecstatic utterances. That's not what it's about. It's in our personal communion with him. It's in prayer, laying out our hearts before him, our deepest desires and our deepest being and being open and honest with him. It's in listening to our Bible and hearing him speak to our hearts in it, a message that we can understand. He speaks to us in a way that we can understand. And it's in obeying and serving and honouring him. This is what 
our relationship with Jesus is all about. It's not about babblings and ecstatic utterances. Ezekiel describes it in chapter 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the experience of the Holy Spirit. Obedience. Walking in God's ways. It seems normal and mundane and ordinary, and yet it's a stupendous work of God to take sinners from the pit of hell and to raise them to the glory of Christ. Acts makes it clear that declaring the mighty works of God in a way that people can understand about the person and work of Christ, it's a glorious thing and it's the work of the Spirit. Paul didn't say, I want to speak in tongues. What did he say? I want to know him. I want to know him. That's the work of the Spirit. Amen. Let's turn to Psalm 63, the psalm which we're thinking of. We'll sing all of the psalm. We'll sing verses 1 to 6, David, if that's okay. This is the song of a thirsty Christian. Verse 1, You, my God, I'll early seek. My soul thirsts for you. In a dry land, weary, waterless, my flesh longs after you. He's longing for an experience of God. I've looked upon you before in your holy place. There I beheld your strength and the glory of your face. He's longing for experience. And where will he find it? Verses 4 and 5. My soul will be satisfied with rich, abundant food. Shouts of joy upon my lips when I remember you with delight on my bed. When I meditate on you in the watches of the night. Delight, joy, and knowing a saviour. That's the experience of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand to sing verses 1 to 6.
Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us a longing and a delight in you like this writer had, and that we would find joy in you as we meditate upon you in the, in the hours of the night. May we sing for joy because you are our help. And Lord, we pray that we would have such a delight in our relationship with you, such a joy in fellowship with our Saviour, that you would keep us from pursuing things of nonsense. And we pray that uh, others would look at our lives and, and want what we have and stop pursuing experiences and want to know the Saviour that we know. For we ask it in Jesus' name. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.